Uh, Genesis 26, 1 to 11 can be found on page 20 in those blue pew Bibles. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking, Lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. This is the word of God. Have a seat. Would you please pray with me as we come to this passage? Father in heaven, in both the psalm that Bryce read for us and the words that he prayed and and now in this passage, um, we see your faithfulness to generations. We're reminded of how you named yourself as one who is faithful for a thousand generations, even as the consequences of our sin extend to the third or to the fourth. Father, we are grateful Um, that you have knit us together to be your people, your body, the family, the household of God. And we are grateful for the way that we have seen your faithfulness extend uh, across the generations in our own lives. And because we have seen that and because we have read and have heard of your faithfulness and of your mighty works, the, the very things that we are commanded to tell to our children Because of that, we are able to set our hope in you uh, and to not forget your works and to obey you. Um, And and more than that, or along with that, we're also able to come before you as we do now and to ask, please continue to be faithful. Please continue to be faithful to our children, uh, to our grandchildren, to our parents, to our grandparents. Thank you for the ways that you work uh, in families. Father, you know the many difficulties uh, and struggles um, that your people gathered here uh, in Newton this afternoon uh, would bring before you uh, the, the, the concerns that we have um, within our families, the things that seem uh, far beyond us to address and to solve. Um, 
and, and we are thankful that you have commanded us to lay those at your feet and to say, we hold these things up to you. You are mighty to save. You have been faithful. You will be faithful again. You can and you will provide all that your, that your people need. Um, thank you that you tell us to cast our cares and anxieties on you because you care for us. Father, I want to thank you um, particularly for the way um, that you work uh, within your body across the generations, even beyond uh, the biological lines, beyond the, the, the nuclear families in, in which we live. Um, I am grateful for the previous generations uh, of people who knew you, who spoke into my life, um, that weren't related to me in any way except that they were my brother or they were my sister in Christ. And I think most of us sitting here can remember stories of, of, of how that has been an influence. And, and now we look at our church and we pray that you would be so gracious as to raise up spiritual mothers and spiritual fathers and brothers and sisters uh, to come alongside of our children, uh, to come alongside of these young ones uh, from, from the very youngest to, to youth um, who are, are, are entering their final stages of high school. Um, Father, would you please be gracious um, to give us uh, that same gift that we uh, have, have, have been given, um, that, that in and through your people, uh, your word would be read, your works, your faithfulness would be on our lips, we would be, we'd be quick, quick to praise you uh, to each other, um, and that in that, uh, your people would be built up and strengthened uh, and would endure um, and, and would indeed um, be equipped uh, to be about the mission uh, that you have given to all of us as your people to be a blessing to the nations. Um, Father, that we, we thank you that we see all of this at work um, here in this passage as we, as we come to it and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes and our ears uh, to what you want us to see and to hear. Father, I ask, as always, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I want you to imagine that um, you and I are meeting for the first time, and, and, and we sit down, and I say, all right, going back to your grandparents, go back to your grandparents and tell me who you are. How would you answer that question? Um, what kinds of stories would, would come to mind? How would you boil it down? Um, this is actually not a hypothetical. I was asked that question by someone um, when we met for the first time, at least the, the first time we met face to face. He said, go back to your grandparents, tell me who you are. Um, it was a pretty amazing, rich time uh, for me <laughs> to, to, to go back and to think um, about the stories that I had heard about my grandparents and to, and to tell him where they had come from um, and, and where they had been and to try to think about what are the things that happened in their lives um, where God had been faithful uh, to my family and, and the things that had happened that in one way or another had contributed to who I am um, today. Um, for me, it was, it was a humbling experience also because it, it, it really laid bare how little I know about my grandparents, how big the gaps are um, in my knowledge of, of, of who they are. 
I think I'm like a lot of Americans in that way, or at least like a lot of Californians. Um, Californians tend to have moved around a lot. Um, and it, it really made me want to go back um, and talk uh, to, um, to my parents. And I wish uh, that I could speak directly to my grandparents uh, at this point and, and get those stories again. Um, it is a pretty amazing thing uh, to think about the faithfulness of our God across generations um, and how who we are and how we are built up is not something that just happens within a single lifetime, but extends uh, to two and to three and to four and to multiple generations, going back further than, than most of our memories. Um, that is what we see going on um, in, this, in this passage today. Um, we are looking at the lives of Isaac, uh, Abraham's son, uh, and Jacob, Isaac's son. Uh, over the course of, of this fall. Um, and as we come to this passage today, um, we're hearing a story about Isaac, who now that he has assumed the mantle of being the head um, of God's chosen family, you know, what's going to become God's people, um, we're hearing some stories that are actually pretty repetitive. Everything that happens to Isaac uh, in these 11 verses basically happened to Abraham also. Um, what I want us to look at uh, today is, is three things. One, I want us to see um, how the promises that God makes to Isaac are the very same that he made uh, to Abraham, how he is consistent. Uh, he, is, he is the same God. Um, secondly, we're going to see Isaac mess up. We're going to see Isaac make some mistakes. And what we're going to see is that the mistakes that Isaac makes are the same mistakes that Abraham made in almost the exact same context. Um, and that's going to be part of the point, is how God continues to be faithful with people who keep messing up um, and don't even really find new ways to do it, uh, keep messing up in the same ways. Um, but lastly, um, I want us to see the faithfulness of our God. And I want us to see how the faithfulness that God extends to Isaac, not just the promises that he makes, but the faithfulness to keep those promises, um, is also the same, um, has not changed. So those, those are the things that we're going to look at. Um, when we started this series uh, a couple weeks ago, one of the things that, that we said um, is that when you read the stories of the patriarchs, if you, if you read them as though the people are the heroes of the story, and if you're looking for, you know, you know where's the person that I can just model my life after who always gets things right, um, you're not going to be able to find that. Um, and it'll be a very confusing story. Um, the hero of these stories throughout is God. Um, it is his call, it is his faithfulness, it is his character and his goodness that's on display um, that we're supposed to notice. And that's, that's the first thing that we see when we see God making the same promises to Isaac uh, that he made to Abraham. Um, God comes to... Uh, so we read right at the beginning that there's a famine, not the same famine as, as before, but a different famine, another famine, and Isaac uh, goes to Gerar, to Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. And then we read that God comes and says some things to him. On the one hand, he says, don't go to Egypt. Um, that's going to be something that God says to his people a lot, um, although the context for that is, is going to shift. But it, it almost always means the same thing. Um, Egypt... Um, 
is a very, very fertile place because of the Nile Delta, because of the natural resources they have. Um, when famine exists in the region in general, usually it's the case that if you can find food anywhere, it's there, it's in Egypt. Um, of course, we see later in Joseph's story how God uses that for provision for his people. But right now, he's saying to Isaac, don't go to Egypt, don't go there. Stay here um, in the land that I've told you about. Um, and listen to what he says. And, and this sounds almost verbatim identical to what he said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Um, he says, don't go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed." because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So basically the same promises. Um, the only thing here that's really new that kind of deepens the promise is where God says, I will be with you. He didn't use those words um, when he first called uh, Abram back in Genesis 12. But he's using them now with Isaac, and beyond that he's promising offspring, land. He's saying, through your family, all families of the earth will be blessed, just like he said to, to Abram back in, in Genesis 12. Um, what we're seeing here is a consistency. The same promise that was made to Abraham um, is now being extended to Isaac. And it's interesting, we're going to hit on this point a couple of times. Notice the reason that God gives. He says, because Abraham obeyed my voice kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. In other words, Isaac is being told explicitly, I am making these promises to you because of what someone else did for you. Um, now, we'll come back and we'll dig a little bit into this question of how and whether Abraham actually kept all of God's laws and, and commandments uh, and such. But for the moment, I just, want to see, I just want us to see how this is already pointing us at Jesus, Right? Already we're seeing how God makes a promise to Isaac, not on the basis of who Isaac is and what Isaac has done, but on the basis of what someone else has done for him. That it's Abraham's faithfulness that has secured this promise uh, for, for Isaac. Um, all of this really gives us a sense of what was at stake. Remember last week we looked at that story uh, where it said that Esau despised his birthright. So Esau and Jacob were Isaac's children. And one of the stories we looked at last week was the one where Esau, as the oldest child, and therefore the, the one with the right to inherit everything uh, from his father, um, gave that up in exchange for some stew because he was hungry. Um, when we see these, these promises and what God is extending across the generations in this family, um, it, it just heightens uh, even more just what Esau gave up. Um, that at stake here um, isn't just, you know, kind of the traditional notion of land and title, right? It's not, just, it's not just that the family keeps inheriting wealth. What's being passed from generation to generation are these promises of a God who will be with them 
who will bless them, who will bless the rest of the world through them. Um, one commentator I read said, that's probably why we get the stories in the order that we get them, because they're not chronological. Um, it, it's, it's unlikely um, that uh, anyone would have failed to realize that Isaac and Rebekah were married if Esau and Jacob had been right there with them, right? Like that, that's a family unit. Um, and so this story we're looking at now probably happened earlier than what we read last week. But the reason that we're getting this story now probably between the birthright being despised and the deception that's going to come uh, in, the, in the next story um, is so as to give us this, this, um, this heightened sense of just what is at stake when we talk about the birthright and the blessing um, in, this, in this family. Um, so that is the promise. That is what God is, is extending uh, to this family and how it's staying the same uh, across the generations. Um, as I say, all of this points us at the fact that the hero of this story is God. He, he's the one who's faithful. He's the one who is consistent. Um, the people are the opposite, right? And so that's the next thing that we see. Um, we see the failures. We see the flaws. We see how Isaac messes up. Um, and again, this is almost identical uh, to what happens with Abraham um, back in Genesis 12. Um, and also in Genesis 20, um, Abraham actually did this twice, uh, and now Isaac does it once. So this is the, the third time that this kind of thing has, has happened. Um, so what happens? So Isaac settles in Gerar, uh, as God uh, tells him to. Um, but then, when the men come along and, and ask about Rebekah, he says, she's my sister, because he's afraid um, that because she's so beautiful, if he says that she's my wife, uh, they might kill him in order to take her. So he says, uh, she's my sister. Um, and then we read, after they had been there a long time, uh, the king, Abimelech, looks out of a window and sees Isaac laughing uh, with Rebekah. Now, um, this word laughing uh, is doing two things. So on the one hand, this is a play on Isaac's name. Isaac's name means laughter. Um, and so there's a little bit of a, a word play uh, going on there. Isaac was named laughter because his mother, Sarah, laughed when God made the promise that she would have a child. She laughed at the idea uh, that she and her husband, who were so old, so far beyond uh, childbearing age, uh, could, have, could have children. Um, but it doesn't just have that edge to it. Isaac is also named laughter because of the joy. Because when he was born, when God was faithful to that promise, there was joy in that household. There was laughter at the birth of this child. Um, the other thing that that word uh, is doing, though, um, is that it's pretty clear uh, that what Abimelech sees is not just Isaac and Rebekah sharing a joke and laughing about it. Um, they are sharing a moment of intimate joy uh, as, as husband and wife. Um, the reason we know this, know this is because of what Abimelech says. He immediately calls Isaac and says, this is not your wife. Uh, what I saw happening is not happening between brother and sister. That's your wife. Um, why on earth did you tell me uh, that she is your sister? And Isaac fesses up and says, I was afraid. I thought you might kill me. I thought someone might kill me. Uh, for her. Abimelech 
recognizes uh, the near disaster uh, that his, his people are under um, and immediately tells all of his people, whoever touches this man uh, or his wife uh, shall surely be put to death. Now, like I said, um, this is exactly the same thing that happened um, with Abram in Genesis 12. That was in Egypt. And then it happened with Abram in Genesis 20 um, with Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. Probably not the same guy. Um, Abimelech means my father is the king, and, and so it was kind of a generic name that might be held by lots of kings. Um, either way, you have to wonder if Abimelech might have heard the story you know, from his father or from his grandfather and is thinking, what is it with you people? Um, why do you keep doing this uh, to us? Um, you guys, this, this failure is cast in particularly sharp relief in the fact that it immediately follows those promises. Right? God has just said, I will be with you. I will bless you. I'm going to give you offspring. I'm going to give you land. Your offspring are going to be a vast multitude. Um, he has just made these promises. And immediately, Isaac is overcome by fear and chooses to lie uh, about his wife. Um, but again, this, this is part of the point. This is, this is part of how it is that God is the hero of this story, uh, and not Isaac, uh, and not Jacob later on. Um, that God will continue to be faithful, uh, even with people who are unfaithful even who are unfaithful in the same way, repeatedly. Um, as Bradley said last week, God's divine purposes will not be thwarted by human attempts to take control, or in this case, by human failure, human weakness, human brokenness, even when it extends across multiple generations. Um, there's something really important here um, that I want to point out uh, to the young people in the room here, to children, uh, to youth. Because um, there's a lot that we've been talking about that applies directly to you. Um, those of you who were baptized in this church, when that happened, um, there were promises that were read. If you weren't baptized in this church or baptized in a different church, there were probably promises, similar promises, about how God is faithful uh, to bless the children of those who know him, who have put their faith uh, in him. Um, and yet, at the same time that we read those promises, what do we always say? You've, you've been at baptisms here before, right? And we always say, these promises are really important. And we are looking with hope. We are looking with expectation for the day when we see these promises come true in your life. Because the fact of the matter is, that just like Abraham messed up and then Isaac messed up, every generation messes up. I don't know if your parents have explained this to you. I don't know if your parents have talked to you about the mistakes that they have made. I, speaking as a parent, that is not an easy thing to talk about. Um, your parents made mistakes. And if you can get them to talk about it, your parents will tell you how God was faithful to them about how they've known his forgiveness, about how they've known his work 
in their, in their lives to, to bring them through those mistakes. Um, and it is likely that you, well, it's guaranteed that you will make mistakes. I don't have to say likely. You will make mistakes. Um, it's likely that you'll make some of the same mistakes that your parents made. One of the, I don't know whether to call it, it's kind of a joy and a sorrow. Uh, it's one of those things sometimes you have to laugh so you don't cry, um, is, is to watch your children make mistakes and you're just thinking, I am so sorry, you are my child. Um, I have given that to you. Uh, you are doing the same things that I did. I know exactly what you were thinking. I know exactly what you were afraid of. Um, I know exactly how that felt because that's where I was 30 years ago. Um, you need to know that just like every generation makes its own mistakes, makes its own sin, every generation needs its own faith. You need for yourself to be able to turn to Jesus and say, I have messed up and I am sorry, and to believe that he will forgive you, and to believe that he has saved not just your parents, he's not just your parents' God, your parents' Savior, um, but he's yours. He wants to know you. He wants to be at work in your life. We, um, in adult ed last week, we looked at this verse in Galatians that Martin Luther would say, you got to write the pronouns in this verse in big capital letters. Listen to this. This is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And in Luther's commentary on, on Galatians, Luther says, he, he looks at that verse, he says, you got to write those words, I and me, in big, bold, capital letters, right? It's not just Jesus died for the world, not just he died for the sins of the world. That's true, and that's glorious, but he died for me. It was my sin that put him there, and it's my sin that's been forgiven. We really want you to know this. What we really want you to know, what we all need to know, is that just like the promises are consistent across generations and the mistakes that get made are often the same across generations, certainly the making of mistakes, the sin, what we see here is that God's faithfulness is unchanging and that the reason for that faithfulness is unchanging. Um, you know, this, this, this passage is so similar to the ones in Genesis 12 and 20 that there are some scholars who say, this really feels like it was just one event and they just told the story three different times and, and three different ways. Um, here in verse 1, the, um, the narrator of this story seems to be aware that that's the case, right? And he goes out of his way to say there was a famine besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. It's like, it's like he's saying, look, I know what I'm about to tell you is going to sound very familiar, and you're going to think that I just made a copy-paste error, although they didn't do that. Um, he's going out of his way 
to say this is not the same event. This actually did happen um, multiple times uh, to, to different people. Um, there's a point to this. There's two points to this. One is um, that on the one hand, we actually see growth in God's people. One of the other things that, that we said when we started this series is that um, even though the people aren't the hero of the story and they don't always get things right and we can't just use them as moral examples, that's not to say that we don't see them growing, that we don't see God working in them um, in ways that can give us hope uh, that, he can, that he can work in us uh, as, as, as well. But more importantly, more importantly, the similarity across these stories just emphasizes for us that we're dealing with the same God, the same faithfulness, and the same reason, the same ground uh, for that faithfulness. And, and I, I think this helps us to make sense of something. I alluded to this earlier that might have seemed puzzling to you when I read it. God says in verse 5, I'm making these promises to you, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. And you might hear that, and by the way, um, you should know that elsewhere in the books of Moses, those phrases, my, my statutes, my commandments, and my laws, those are used to represent like the totality of the law. This is a way of saying Abraham did everything that he was commanded to do. And if you've ever read Abraham's story, for instance, if you've read Genesis 12 and 20, you say, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Which Abraham are you referring to that did everything he was supposed to do, that was always obedient? Um, we know Abraham sinned. We know Abraham messed up. What do we do with this? There's two ways to deal with this. On the one hand, I think it's the case that you can say um, that if you look at the totality of Abraham's life, and if you look at where he ended up, um, and if you look at the faithfulness that he exhibited, um, for instance, in being willing to offer up Isaac, the very son of the promise, you can say that in the end, as Abraham grew and matured uh, in his faith, he did become someone um, that obeyed everything that God told him to do. But that still begs the question, why? How? By what power did that change uh, take place in Abraham's life? And it turns out that the basis of the change in Abraham's life and the basis for the promises that God made to him and then to Isaac in the first place is exactly the same. Um, it really does come down to obedience. It really does come down to perfect obedience, but it doesn't come down to the perfect obedience of Abraham or to the perfect obedience of Isaac. And this is what we need to know for ourselves, is that in the end, the ground for our salvation, the ground for change in our lives, the ground for us to be able to be in God's presence and to hope that we actually do look more and more like his son over time, really does come down to perfect obedience, but not ours. I want to read a passage for you from the book of Romans. 
we'll end with, with, with this, um, although it's, it's, a, it's a few verses. This is Romans 4, um, verses 13 to 25. And the reason I want to read this, um, sometimes, you know, you're, you're studying a difficult passage. Uh, people have, have been studying uh, difficult books uh, in, in this church and have, have come to Bradley or have come to me and said, you know, is there a commentary that you would recommend? Like, is there, is there something that we can read that will help us to understand what we're reading? And that's always a good thing. Um, difficult passage of the Bible, it's good to read the work of people that have really studied it carefully and know what's going on, you know, in a book like Isaiah. But sometimes you get portions of the New Testament that actually serve as commentary on what came before, and then you're really golden, right? Because then you're not just dealing with a really smart biblical scholar. You've got divinely inspired commentary on what came before. And I think Paul gives us some of that in Romans 4. Um, Romans 13, excuse me, Romans 4, 13 to 25. It says, The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there's no law, there is no transgression. Listen to this. This is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he has been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead our Lord, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You guys, two quick things, and then we'll close. If salvation depended on Abraham's obedience, on Isaac's obedience, on our obedience, then Paul says, the promises would be null, they would be void, and we just flatly wouldn't be able to do it. Nobody obeys perfectly. But the second thing, the only way that this promise could be guaranteed to Abraham and to Isaac and to all his offspring, right down to us sitting here in this room, who by grace are blessed to be called the sons and daughters of Abraham, and children of God is if someone really does obey perfectly. And that is who Jesus is. Jesus is the one who obeyed all of God's 
statutes and commandments and his laws and did it all perfectly in our place. That's who all of this is really pointing us to. As Paul says, it is Jesus, the one who obeyed perfectly and the one who was delivered up for our trespasses, the one who suffered in our place, who paid the penalty for our sins, but who was raised for our justification. It was in Christ who, in fact, did obey everything and who lived the life that we were supposed to live, died the death that we deserve to die in order to give us new life and to give it in abundance. Um, we get to come to this table now um, and share a taste of that and to do it together. Um, we get to pray together before we come to the table, so let's do that now.